Hi, I'm B. Elliott. I'm a vegan abolitionist here in Central Florida. You can find me on the web by googling provoked animal rights or go to belliot.blogspot.com. In the meantime, I hope you enjoy this next uh, coexisting with non-human animals. Uh, it's a great podcast and thank you, Jordan, for all you do. I know the human being and fish can coexist peacefully. Vegetarian. Vegan. Yeah, Let's well. get it right. You used the word animals, but I suppose what you should have said is non-human animals. Hello and welcome to a fine episode of Coexisting with Non-Human Animals. My friend Sasha James of Melbourne Vegan is thinking of having her own podcast. I think it's very exciting to hear from other vegans. If you're at all interested, it's very easy to record your voice and upload it, and I'm sure a lot of people would like to hear your thoughts. You can find Sasha's blog at melbournevegan.wordpress.com. I recently made a blog post about how, at least in New Zealand, the term free-range is meaningless. A free-range egg has no real definition. I'll include a link to my blog post if you'd like to find out more. I recently listened to a recent NPR debate about the label organic and if it was just a marketing ploy. Organic offers benefit over conventional production. First of all, organic animals eat a diet free of poop. Can you believe that? So why am I saying that? Am I a nutball? But no, conventional agriculture and conventional farming in this country actually picks up chicken litter from the bottom of the chicken coops filled with poop, excrement, whatever that chicken ate, including mammalian byproducts, cow brain, blood meal. And guess what? Animals eat that in conventional production. It also can include garbage, plastic roughage pellets, and this is the stuff that we freely, in fact, we call it a rich protein supplement. I mean, this is a protein (laughs) considered useful for animal feeding. It's not allowed in organic production. The side against organic farming mentioned that other, more conventional methods produce more, and they trot out statistics of a booming global population. We need more food, they say, and nobody wants children overseas to starve, right? Of course, when they are talking about farming food, they are almost certainly meaning so-called factory farming of animals. And if the Chinese reach half of the pet saturation that we have in this country, that will mean another 250 million companion cats and dogs, none of them vegetarian. We will need to double world food production again. We will need to triple the yields on the best farmland because that only gives the highest yields and the least erosion. It displaces the fewest wildlife species. I don't know about cats, but certainly dogs can have a vegan diet. Just ask Gary Francione. But this organic stuff also counts as another feel-good term for buying animal parts. It's mentioned how wonderful organic farmers are to their property. I mean animals. Another of the major claims that are made 
and, and marketed. If, if, you're, if you're shopping in the livestock part of the aisle, in the dairy or eggs or, or beef, um, livestock and organic farms have to be given an ample space to carry out natural behaviors. They have to be raised in an environment where they can stay healthy without their daily dose of antibiotics, which Urvashi spoke about. Uh, they have to be given uh, access to, to outside, you know, unless it's 20 below and, and the weather would, would be dangerous for them. But they, they have to be raised in a, a much more humane way. That's built right into the rules. All organic farmers have to do it. And if you, if you care about how animals are cared for, if you care, you know, it's great that we can you know, buy cheap bacon and, and eggs don't cost much, but if you, if you do care about how animals are cared for, organic agriculture is the only system of agriculture backed up by solid rules. There's always a better way to treat animals than killing them. How about letting them live their lives free of our meddling? It doesn't cost us a dime, and it's honestly the difference between life and death to the animals themselves. I always enjoy hearing about vegetarians and vegans on general interest shows, even negatively, like on the last episode of This Week in Tech. This isn't one where you made the kid throw up, is it? No, no, no. This is, this is him giving up his vegetarianism after two Aww. years. And he did it in style. And it looks like he's eating bacon. Oh, yeah. No, we got, we got all the Rudy's barbecue. Austin has phenomenal barbecue. I have to say, I really enjoyed the barbecue. I think the more often the terms vegetarian and vegan are brought up in general conversation, the more normal they sound. I wouldn't go pulling any pranks such as having sexist ads apparently promoting veganism, but I do think it's a good thing that veganism is at least an understood term. I'm a big fan of No Agenda. I listen to it while working, normally in the morning. I've donated a few times. If you are rich enough to give a thousand American dollars, you become a No Agenda Knight. It would look great on my CV, um, but I think I can come up with a few better uses of a thousand dollars in the world. I have some friends who would like to help out financially, but they are too damn proud to accept my charity. Damn it, you know who you are. There's also the William Paul MacBook Pro Fund. No Agenda's target audience is probably American Libertarians. Far right-wing guys. There's only about 20 women who listen to No Agenda. No Agenda had a lot of vegan bashing at the start, with coverage of Peter stunts such as having pregnant vegan women naked in factory farming cages for just one example. I'd like to think that over time, I've had some influence on the large audience who listen to No Agenda, as they hear of an actual vegan who enjoys the show. I was dubbed the No Agenda Vegan in Residence, although there's actually quite a few vegans I know who listen. Here's a few early negative mentions about vegans. It's crazy. Somehow the vegans are behind this, I'm sure of it. Uh, by the way, this is a good conversation for this particular show because this gets rid of any of the vegans that might be listening, I yeah, hope. Th th those of you still left. Yeah, get it, you know, go someplace else. Um... And, uh, you know, uh, Christina is with us, and she brought her uh, boyfriend, Dexter, who is, oh, God, oh, shock, oh, horror. He's a vegetarian. <laughs> <laughs> I know. It's like God is punishing me. It's like, oh, you want to make fun of those guys? Here, have one. <laughs> vegetarian. <laughs> so you took your, your, uh, your uh, potential son-in-law's... Uh to the restaurant, and they, of course, have no vegetarian dishes there, right? Actually, they had a special vegetarian menu. Could you believe it? I was blown mm -hmm. away. Yeah. Oh, that's good. But you know why? Because Portugal is like one of the great uh, spots for the Brits to hang out. Exactly. 
and, and the Brits have, are they have a lot of oddballs in Britain, and, and they uh, most of the vegetarian movements have all begun there. I even got them to mention World Vegan Day, although I have never complained when they talk about eating meat. That must be one of the many other vegans in the audience. And John may be the first to say, Happy World Vegan Day! You know, we have a, uh, I, I was noticing on my Twitter feed that we have a vegan, uh, is it vegan or vegan? I can never remember. I think it's uh, vegan. Yeah, it's vegan. And he yeah. says that he uh, listens to the show, he likes it, but until we start, until we start talking about meat. Well, he's the one, of course, that pointed out to me that it is uh, World Vegan Day today and wanted me to be the... Did you check on this to make sure? No, I didn't. <laughs> of course I oh, didn't. that might help. <laughs> Wait a minute. Don't tell me I've been scammed. I'm sure it is World Vegan Day. He actually says, on behalf of all of us vegans who listen to No Agenda, I'm sure we've got a whole slew. Since 1994, as a matter of fact. Well, there you go. First of November, World Vegan Day. You know, speaking of the World Vegan Day, um, there's a, what's his name? Uh, Climate Chief Lord Stern from Gitmo Nation East in the United Enslavement of the Kingdom. They have an office of the of the climate change over there in uh, Gitmo Nation East. It's an actual governmental office. Yes. And uh, this Chief Lord Stern, they come out with this whole report, and he's saying... In order to save the world, we must stop eating meat. Yes, coincidentally, just like the day before World uh, Vegan, Vegan Day. day. Now, these things are no coincidence. They never are. People would quote from him, people will need to turn vegetarian if the world is to conquer climate change. <laughs> but, but, who, but whose agenda is that, really? <laughs> I'm just trying to figure it out. You know, it's like, it, clearly it's not the meat industry. So <laughs> who is behind this? The vegans? I, the, that's my guess. The veggie people? The veggies. Oh, here it is. Times Archive, 1851, Meeting of the Vegetarian Society. Hey, that's your new world order right there, the Vegetarian Society, better, better known as Veggie Sock. <laughs> veggie Sock. <laughs> that's got to be it. A common meme is that no agenda listeners are some sort of military unit. They joke about the no agenda militia. There's the Knights and also the Minutemen. I wanted to pick a good title for No Agenda Vegans. Something that suggested independence, inner strength, on the outside massive muscles, and perhaps a little French culture. Finally, Jordan Wyatt in uh, New Zealand, and has a message, Happy 200th uh, episode on behalf of all the non-sanctioned, officially unrecognized Green Beret contingents of the No Agenda Vegans. <laughs> P.S. Remember, he's a you know. P.S. Remember all the vegan bashing, and now for our numbers, we must be coughing up the big bucks. What can beat a green beret? JFK described the headwear as a symbol of excellence, a badge of courage, a mark of distinction, and the fight for freedom. I like to think that by sending in stories to No Agenda, I can put a nice spin on any vegan stereotypes held by Adam and John as well as the half-million-odd listeners, as they learn there's much more to veganism than that damn Peter. And talking about creepy PR stunts, I found a horrifying children's character, created by New Zealand Beef and Lamb, basically our evil meat board. The character has a bizarre name, a shirt that looks like it's made from metal, and blue hair. I don't know what kid could possibly relate to such a character, 
I'd be more inclined to think it would kill the family pet in its bloodlust. Reading from the kids' corner. Hi, kids. My name is Ian Bryan. I think that's how you pronounce it. And I'm eight years old. You might be wondering how I got to be so big and strong. Well, I'll let you in on a little secret. I eat lots of New Zealand beef and lamb. Beef and lamb are packed full of many important vitamins and minerals and make an important contribution to the healthy, balanced diet of all Kiwi kids. I eat lean beef and lamb at least three to four times a week to make sure I get nature's power pack, which I need to be healthy and strong. By eating beef and lamb, I have enough energy to run around and play sports and to work hard at school. I am the star of the Iron Brian Roadshow, which visits primary schools throughout New Zealand. I come to your school with my assistants and my barbecue trailer and talk to all you boys and girls about the importance of healthy eating and exercise. You even get to take part in the Iron Brian workout and might be lucky enough to win a prize. At the end of the show, receive a delicious healthy burger to have for lunch. Yum! In the meantime, kids, make sure you eat a healthy diet with lots of different foods, and be sure to eat delicious New Zealand beef and lamb. Take care, Iron Brian. I've found a few pictures of our friend Iron, and it, um, he, looks horrifying. The head is similar to those old Cabbage Patch dolls, rather malformed looking, with blue hair that looks like the business end of a paintbrush. And this thing prances about on stage for a full hour, telling small children about how yummy and healthy it is to eat blood and guts. Actually, the tour no doubt has to promote a balanced diet, and so there's the usual song and dance with different food groups and the like. From what I've seen, there are four giant cards that get held up. Fruits and vegetables, breads and cereals, milk and dairy products, and of course, meat. Ah, but not just meat, but get this. Meat and meat alternatives. I couldn't believe it. Wait, wait, wait. So, beef and lamb have this prancing blue-haired character that goes about schools promoting tofu? Um, not quite. This card has depictions of bloody-looking ribs, a ham, chicken legs, and wait for it, the tail of a fish. I think that's the quote, meat alternative, a fish, an aquatic animal. I have no idea where the whole, the bodies of animals that live on land or air are made of meat, and its cousin, animals that live underwater are not made of meat, came from. Nobody would doubt that aquatic animals are, well, animals, and they have muscles. But their muscles are not considered meat. So, beef and lamb, among other things, promotes meat and meat alternatives, which means the tail of a fish. But let's not get confused here. No doubt even the New Zealand government wouldn't let them get away promoting a diet solely of cows and sheep. I'm sure they have to mention fruits and vegetables, breads and cereals. Meats relative dairy products were also included. I still find it weird that the card says meat and meat alternatives, when it doesn't mean tofu at all. I've looked at photos from the tour. The crew gets around in a silver Toyota van that's sign written with the production's name. Iron Brian's Beef and Lamb Barbecue Express. No mention of the other food groups there. There's a drawing of the food groups with teaching kids the importance of a healthy, balanced diet. Of course they have to say that, but it's a little hard to ignore that Iron Brian is not some blue-haired costume nutritionist, a government minister working to help New Zealanders be healthy, but a blue-haired, demon-spawned pawn of the meat industry. This is one of the few times I wish I had a podcast that included video elements. 
Hmm. The idea of the meat industry promoting its byproduct to school children. Where have I heard that before? Being forced to promote other food groups. Um, excuse me. Isn't there anything here that doesn't have meat in it? Possibly the meatloaf. Well, I believe you're required to provide a vegetarian alternative. Yum. It's rich in bunly goodness. A presentation given to children by the meat industry. Good morning, class. A certain agitator, for privacy's sake, let's call her Lisa S. No, that's too obvious. Uh, let's say L. Simpson. Uh, has raised questions about certain school policies. So, in the interest of creating an open dialogue, sit silently and watch this film. Nothing beats a stroll in cattle country. <clears throat> Hi, I'm Troy McClure. You may remember me from such educational films as 2 minus 3 equals negative fun and Firecrackers, the silent killer. Mr. McClure? Oh, hello, Bobby. Jimmy, I'm curious as to how meat gets from the ranch to my stomach. Whoa, 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 slow down, Jimmy. You just asked a mouthful. It all starts here in the high-density feedlot. Then when the cattle are just right, hmm, it's time for them to graduate from Bovine University. Come on, Jimmy. Let's take a peek at the killing floor. <gasps> Don't let the name throw you, Jimmy. It's not really a floor. It's more of a steel grating that allows material to sluice through so it can be collected and exported. Getting hungry, Jimmy? Mr. McClure, I have a crazy friend who says it's wrong to eat meat. Is he crazy? No, just ignorant. You see, your crazy friend never heard of the food chain. Just ask this scientician. Uh, He'll tell you that in nature, one creature invariably eats another to survive. Uh, Don't kid yourself, Jimmy. If a cow ever got the chance, he'd eat you and everyone you care about. Wow, Mr. McClure, I was a grade-A moron to ever question eating meat. <laughs> yes, you were, Jimmy. Yes, you were. Um, you're hurting me. An hour of brainwashing. Blood is good, dairy is good. Mumble, mumble fruits, mumble vegetables, mumble bread. But don't forget, kids, blood is good for you. And afterwards, there's photos of the children lined up, as if at the stockyards, to receive their burger. You've got to really hammer the message home. Meat is good. And look, here's meat. Hmm, once again, that sounds familiar. They can't seriously expect us to swallow that tripe. Now is a special treat courtesy of our friends at the Meat Council. Please help yourselves to this tripe. <laughs> Apparently, my crazy friend here hasn't heard of the food chain. Yeah, Lisa's a grade-A moron. <laughs> when I grow up, I'm going to Bovine University. It's interesting that Apu must be vegan, although sadly the V word is not used. Try and guess which celebrity cuts in at the end. There! Is everybody happy now? I take it from your yelling that you like my tofu dogs. Tofu? Oh yes, no meat whatsoever, and only thrice the fat of a normal hot dog. 
I made the switch and nobody noticed. But why, Apu? Because I'm a vegetarian. When will all those fools learn that you can be perfectly healthy simply eating vegetables, fruits, grains, and cheese? Oh, cheese! You don't eat cheese, Apu? No, I don't eat any food that comes from an animal. Then you must think I'm a monster. Yes, indeed, I do think that. But I learned long ago, Lisa, to tolerate others rather than forcing my beliefs on them. You know, you can influence people without badgering them always. It's like Paul's song, Live and Let Live. Actually, it was Live and Let Die. Whatever, whatever. It had a good rhythm. I like that. I was once asked by a female friend if I was upset that she was not vegan. I don't think she wanted me to reply with... Yes, in my eyes, you are a monster. Paul and Linda McCartney show up near the end of the episode. I truly feel sorry for people who grew up without The Simpsons. Where else do you learn about vegetarians from famous rock stars? And here is my last story. I've long known that a pig farm is built near where I live, probably 10 minutes from my house, that would have pigs raised to be made into a potential diabetes cure. The animals are a disease-free species the Auckland Island Pigs, who are living just fine on an island at the bottom of the world. Mankind had ditched them there so that they could be killed as food for shipwreck survivors, you know, back in the day. But then the Department of Conservation decided it needed to ethnically cleanse introduced species, because those apparently foreign pigs might eat a native plant or two, out there on that rock in the middle of nowhere. I managed to record the audio from an Australian tour of the pig farm. As far as I know, no footage from the facility has been shown publicly in New Zealand. We just get told about all the benefits it will bring to our economy. Oh, and that it will surely cure every disease that afflicts mankind. The Mayor of Invercargill, Tim Shadbolt, a real character known nationwide for being at least 98% crazy, claims the pigs as his idea. He gets in a few funny jokes, but I can see the dollar signs in his eyes. It's never mentioned that there's a big controversy over the ethics of animal-to-human transplants. All local coverage is one-sided. Footage shown of Auckland Island pigs has always been of happy-looking pigs, living on grass fields. The mayor even hugs and feeds the animals. Of course, these are not the animals killed for medical treatments. Those have to be kept in sterile environments. It really looks exactly like a, quote, factory farming pig farm. The pigs live their whole lives on concrete. They will never get to see the sun or feel wind. They are killed when they are young, currently for a single organ. I'll read a detailed reply I got from the company raising the pigs after the clip. I just want to give you that mental picture. We are told about how great the pig farm is for the New Zealand economy and sick people worldwide. We are shown footage of the mayor wearing his animal skin robes, feeding the animals on a sunny day but the actual pigs can never be exposed to any potential disease vectors. They are kept in concrete cubicles for most of their time. The cleanest pigs on the planet, but these little piggies will never be sent to market. Kept in a secret location in New Zealand, they almost certainly hold the key to a cure for type 1 diabetes. Their ancestors were shipwrecked on one of the world's most inaccessible islands, evolving for two centuries in a virus-free haven. Now their unique cells are being transplanted into a small group of human volunteers. And the early results are astounding. Here's guest reporter Dr John Darcy. At the very bottom of New Zealand is Invercargill, home of freezing winds and the world's fastest Indian. 
from the town at the end of the earth, from an animal most people think is a filthy beast, comes a potential cure for type 1 diabetes. All around the world, the multinational drug companies have really tried to find a cure. They've all failed. And down here, this tiny little Anzac company, maybe we have found the answer. And the man who saw the potential of the purest little piggies in the world, the mayor of Invercargill. Population 50,000 humans and 198 very special pigs. The first item of business will be the Auckland Island pigs. Twelve years ago, Mayor Tim Shadbolt had a meeting which changed the history of his town and medical science. Feral pigs on an island 500 kilometres due south were due to be culled by DOC, the Department of Conservation. And a group of trampers came into my office. Twenty trampers. Well, you know what trampers are like. They're all trendy, lefty, measly, munching, yogurt-eating, wool spinners who are into macrame underwear, bio-rhythms and herbal shampoo. They wear those silly bum bags and they've got no friends. You know the type I mean. So they said, oh, Mayor Tim, we're from the Rare Breeds Conservation Trust and we've heard that Doc is going to shoot all the pigs on the Auckland Island and we reckon they might be valuable one day for something, you know, and and so we're going to go and rescue them, but we've got no money. And we were wondering if when we get them back to Invercargill, if you could feed them out of the Mayor's Contingency Fund. You've probably never heard of the Auckland Islands, but they're remote specks between New Zealand and Antarctica. Nearly 200 years ago, pigs were bought here as emergency rations for shipwreck survivors. Over time, their descendants became the purest pigs on the planet. This natural history quarantine left them free of viruses, their cells and blood just perfect for research. So when it was discovered that the blood that was sent to a laboratory and it was the purest blood of any mammal on this earth, they just couldn't believe it. In 1999, the Auckland Island pigs were rounded up and escorted off to their new Invercargill home. Seventeen pigs made the trip and soon enough, thanks to the Bears Contingency Fund, they were breeding like rabbits. So long as they were stuck in a refrigerator for 200 years, they never had sex. Well, except on birthdays and at Christmas. And when they did, they were lucky to have one scrawny little piglet in every litter. But the minute they arrived in Invercargill and discovered our wheat and barley and swedes overnight, they became raging sexual maniacs. I tell you, it was like a huge student party. By Christmas, I had 198 Auckland Island pigs laughing and farting and burping and feasting on the Mayor's Contingency Fund. For over a decade, a select few have continued to be kept free of viruses at a very sterile and very secret facility. The world's best hope for a diabetes cure. The pigs have been isolated from human beings for over 100 years and they stay isolated at this undisclosed piggery to protect them from disease. Now, this might surprise you, 
but they're cared for in Hilton-style splendour in a facility that's cleaner and more efficient than most hospitals. They've maintained that pristine freedom from infection. So they're a very, very unique herd. Without them, we would not be able to go ahead. 14 years ago, Professor Bob Elliott began a revolutionary trial, transplanting pig cells into a handful of diabetic volunteers. Pig insulin is almost identical to human insulin. As yet unaware of the purer breed from the Auckland Islands, Bob used cells from normal pigs. I had been watching what had been going on with using human cells and realised there'd never be enough of those to do, treat anything but a very tiny proportion of the 20 or 30 million type 1 diabetics in the world. So we had to change to another um, species. Type 1 diabetes occurs when the body's own immune system destroys the insulin-producing cells of the pancreas. Bob believed that by wrapping pig cells in what's called alginate, a derivative of seaweed, they'd work in humans without triggering deadly immune reactions. So, the trial began, using cells from the pancreases of pigs. They're literally poured in, in through a funnel, through that tube into the belly cavity. The moment they hit the belly cavity, they go just about everywhere. They float around for a while, they develop their own little blood system. They're just in little clumps around the place. And we start to see them working and making insulin. After about six to eight weeks, we've got evidence they're making insulin. I do recall seeing the surgeon pick up a beaker of liquid and swirling it and looking at it like a fine white wine and then pouring it in through a funnel. They sewed me up and uh, I was out of hospital that day. Peter Thompson, a type 1 diabetic, took part in the first trial and showed immediate improvement. Once they put that white wine inside you, what, what actually happened? What actually happened was my requirement for insulin was either reduced hugely or reduced altogether. But the promising trial came to a halt. In the years following, panicked by the mad cow outbreak, authorities in New Zealand and Australia banned all cross-species transplantation. It was a real kick in the guts. You know, here was our one hope for a solution to this disease. Meanwhile, in Invercargill, caring for the Auckland Island pigs was proving costly. Even my own councillors turned on me. They took the Mayor's Contingency Fund off me. They renamed it the Councillor's Contingency Fund. They put a couple of Presbyterians in charge and they haven't spent a dollar since. But not everyone was so short-sighted. Well, when we were hunting around for a suitable pig herd, obviously we've got to use pigs that are free from any infection that can be handed on to man. And we heard more or less by accident about these pigs that have been brought back from the Auckland Islands. In 2004, the mayor, the professor and the pigs finally became aware of each other. The pig Hilton was built and research began in earnest. But with bans still in place in Australia and New Zealand, Bob Elliott was forced to look overseas to restart human trials. 
In 2007, a Russian hospital decided to go for it. So the next thing they sent some pig cells off to Russia for human trials, because <coughs> they're not so fussy over there, probably used a few political dissidents like myself, and uh, the, the tests were all really positive. The people were actually cured or really improved. Things we learned from Russia were that we could do these implants completely safely. Then we found that we had evidence these cells were working, producing insulin and making their diabetes better. Even a couple of the patients came right off insulin. So we had proof of principle it would work and that it was safe. Bob Elliott had his evidence. New Zealand lifted its ban and last December Australia followed. New trials have just begun and the initial results are very promising. Is it exciting? Oh yes, immensely exciting. I mean, I started this research 50 years ago and it's very, very satisfying to see this sort of conclusion emerging out of, out of a lifetime's work. And if this proves to be a cure for type 1 diabetes, cures for other diseases like Parkinson's may follow. These pigs will never go to market. They're now worth $350,000 each. But the hope they're giving millions is priceless. And for a tiny little co company like this, a good old Anzac company, you guys own it, but half the shareholders are Kiwis. You know, we could crack it. I'll tell you what, once those trials are finished, I'll be demanding the reinstatement of the Mayor's Contingency Fund. Wow. And even though it's an Australian company carrying out the research, at this stage, only New Zealanders are eligible for the trial. I really hope you watch the video to see the pigs for yourself. I took screenshots and you can see those on my Flickr account, which I've linked to on my blog. Here is a letter I wrote to my local newspaper a long time ago now, after the company itself wouldn't reply to my private emails. What happens to the diabetes pigs? I would like to know the actual plan when it comes to using pigs for organ transplant. I've asked both the Mayor and Living Cell Technologies to be honest about what their procedures involve. How I understood the Mayor's last article, investors are being asked to spend $3 billion on a factory farm. From what I understand of the process, admittedly very little. The pigs will be monitored in a sterile cell block, kept alive for their organs and blood. Will it be like in the Matrix? Bodies encased in a pink slime? Tubes every which way? Who knows? And for this, these poor pigs will find themselves being trademarked as Diabcell. What is that exactly? Is it an organ attached to a person? A series of injections? I would genuinely like to be informed. Can't we return these poor pigs back to their lovely remote holiday home on the Auckland Islands to live their lives free of mad science? Or will the dollar signs win out? Jordan Wyatt, Invercargill. Living Cell Technologies Chief Executive Paul Tan replies, Living Cell Technologies, LCT, is breeding pigs in special facilities in Invercargill. The intention is to use pig tissue to treat human diseases rather than as a source of food. No experiments are conducted on the pigs. They are housed in environmentally controlled facilities that give them a very comfortable existence and protect them from the viruses that modern pig herds have. They each have their own pen, 
which is a large area so that the pig can move around and lie out full length in any direction. They are let out of their pens twice a day for exercise, to play and socialise with the other pigs. The pigs are given toys and the staff spend time grooming, bathing and giving attention. The pancreas of young piglets are taken to obtain cells that produce insulin. The piglets are anaesthetised for the pancreas to be removed and they are then humanely euthanised while still under anaesthesia. In a separate manufacturing unit, the cells are processed into gel capsules and the product, Diabcell, registered trademark, can be implanted into the abdomen of someone with type 1 diabetes. In this form of diabetes, the insulin-producing cells of the pancreas have been destroyed, and the person becomes insulin deficient. It is treated with life-saving insulin injections, but this still causes life-threatening swings in blood glucose levels. The implanted pig cells produce insulin when blood glucose is high and switch off when blood glucose returns to normal. Pigs are used because pig insulin is very similar to human insulin. Prior to genetically modified human insulin becoming today's standard treatment, pig insulin was routinely used to treat human diabetes for many decades. The pigs were left on the Auckland Islands by sailors as a food source. Duck would like to remove all the pigs from the Auckland Islands to protect the plant and bird life there. By breeding these unique pigs in comfortable conditions, not only are we preserving the breed, their tissues are used to save human lives. We are aware that Southland has an active social and economic development program, and our company is pleased to be part of its progress. Well, we know how the pigs were removed. They were almost all killed outright, they weren't removed from place X to place Y where they could live happy lives. They were sent straight to hell, courtesy of our Department of Conservation. I hate thinking about these poor pigs being kept in awful concrete surroundings, and so close to my home. It makes me think of all the footage from the animals film in Earthlings. It always felt so far away, but now it's just 10 minutes drive from my house. I think about all the love and care I give to the chicken family living in my backyard, and how these pigs will never experience anything like it. They will never even be let outside. I'd like to mention a couple quick things from the official reply. Yes, from the clip I played, the animals can be seen to have enough room to move in the concrete cubicles with their barred gates. I would think the pigs would have enough room to walk in a very tight circle. I'm sure if I was in one of the cubicles, I could reach out and touch both concrete walls. I'd like to know what happens when the pigs are, quote, let out of their pens twice a day for exercise, to play and socialise with other pigs. It makes it sound like a kindergarten, not a medical facility, raising pigs in sterile factory farming conditions. I know it's hard to deny seriously ill people treatment, or potential treatment, but I just don't think it's moral. I honestly think I would rather die than receive an organ from an unwilling donor, someone, not something, who was killed so that I could live. I hope my last story didn't make you feel terribly sad. I try to feel better by thinking about the positive force I am for the animals I look after. I feel strange saying that, because my little chicken friends are really taking care of themselves. I do feed them grain and mash, but they forage for themselves eating weeds and almost any plant they can get their beaks around. I certainly know that I can't help the pigs by asking for larger concrete cubicles. Being so daring as to ask for so much room that I couldn't personally touch each side. 
nor would asking that they be released from the prison cell three times a day really help in any meaningful way. No matter how the animals are treated by the staff, they are still essentially someone's property, objects that are killed while still being piglets. I truly see veganism as a moral baseline for anyone who loves animals. Thank you for listening to Coexisting with Non-Human Animals. You can find the script for this episode, as well as downloads for every episode of Coexisting with Non-Human Animals at coexistingwithnonhumananimals.blogspot.com If you want to contact me, even just to say you've listened, send an email to jwontdart at gmail.com or on Twitter, twitter.com slash j-a-y-w-o-n-t-d-a-r-t I'd appreciate it. Thank you for listening. Away from the notion of animals as things and toward the moral personhood of animals. The choice is ours. If you're not vegan, go vegan. It's easy. It's better for you. It's certainly better for the planet. And most importantly, it's the morally right thing to do.